Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Pinnacle Renewable Energy, Inc. Q3 2020 Quarterly Results Conference Call. At this time, all lines are in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session. If at any time during this call you require assistance, please press star zero for the operator. This call is being recorded on Tuesday, November 10th, 2020. I'd now like to turn the conference over to Duncan Davies. Please go ahead. Thanks very much, Pam. Good morning, everybody, and thanks for joining us. This is my first call as the CEO of Pinnacle, and I'm excited to be here. Joining me this morning is my predecessor, Rob McCurdy, as well as Andrea Johnson, our CFO. As a point of reference, we've posted a slide deck for this call on our website and through the webcast link. I've known Pinnacle for many years and have long admired the sense of ambition and entrepreneurship that I see in the company. More so, I see Pinnacle as a company of significant potential both from an operating standpoint and from the standpoint of future growth. Biomass is a key piece of the renewable energy sector and the fight against climate change. And Pinnacle is one of the best positioned and most forward-thinking members of that sector. I'm looking forward to doing what I can to help the company deliver on its potential and to build significant value for its shareholders, customers, and other stakeholders in the process. It's fair to say that Pinnacle delivered very good results in the third quarter with record production and strong margins. We also made significant gains on several of our key capital projects that will continue to derive our momentum going forward. And while I'd like to take credit for all this progress, that wouldn't be fair. Rob McCurdy was at the helm of the company in the third quarter, so I'm going to turn this call over to him to run through the highlights. I'll be back later in the call to provide an update on our capital projects and outlook for the balance of the year. Rob? Thanks, Duncan. It was a good quarter. We set a new pellet production high in the quarter of 587,000 metric tons produced. This was 13% higher than the second quarter and 30, 33% higher than the third quarter last year. This helped reduce our costs by 7% on quarter by quarter and the gains turned into a 46% increase in our adjusted gross margin, net of insurance proceeds versus Q2, and a similar increase in, in adjusted EBITDA, which was our highest recorded in the company. We saw strong performance gains across our entire fleet of plants in the, in the quarter, led by Williams Lake, which benefited from recently upgraded dryer, increased production, it increased its production by over 47% over Q2. Entwistle continued its impressive ramp up, producing more than 6% over Q2 as well. On the fiber side, sawmill residuals increased 84% of the company's feedstock in Q3 compared to 74% in Q2. Lumber markets continued to be strong and the sawmills continued to run at a high rate. 
Overall fiber costs were down 2% quarter over quarter. Fiber inventories were managed down by 10% during the quarter as our comfort levels regarding the sawmill run rate increased. These results were achieved in spite of some of the logistics disruptions we had in the quarter with CN and also Fiber Co. Terminal. These had an impact of approximately 20,000 tons over the quarter, resulting in $600,000 of additional rail distribution and demerge costs. The incident at FiberCo was caused by a structural failure of a grain silo, and this, this necessitated the rerouting of rail to our Westview port and also diverting ships to our Westview port. Since then, in mid-October, the flow of pellets has resumed at FiberCo. Now we continue our focus on working with CN to improve the service levels um, throughout the next quarter. Before I hand the call over to Andrea, I'd like to take a moment to recognize Duncan's appointment as CEO. The management team and I have been working very closely with him since he came on the board in, in April. I'm very pleased with our transition and confident in our transition plan and would like to personally thank Duncan. As I reflect over my last eight years at, at Pinnacle, it's a journey I wouldn't want to miss. And I'd like to recognize and thank the Pinnacle team for all their contributions and everything they've done over the last eight years. It's been an honor to lead this group. Finally, I'd like to thank you, our investors and analysts, for your commitment to our story and the support you provided over the years. I will now, for the final time, hand the call over to Andrea. Thank you very much, Rob, and welcome, Duncan, and good morning, everyone. Before I begin with the financial summary of the quarter, I would like to remind participants that this call contains forward-looking statements and non-IFRS financial measures, both of which are more fully described in our published MD&A for the quarter. Revenue for the third quarter of 2020 totaled $131.7 million, an increase of 42% compared to Q3 a year ago, resulting primarily from increased sales volume of 177,000 metric tons. CIF sales in Q3 were 22% higher than Q3 2019 and accounted for 58.6% of total sales this quarter. Production costs were $83.5 million in the quarter, an increase of 38.7% compared to $60.2 million in Q3 last year. The increase was primarily due to the increase in sales volume and this was offset by $3.2 million in unit production cost savings in Q3 2020 compared to Q3 2019. This savings occurred from spreading out a greater proportion of our fixed costs over the higher production volumes. Distribution costs for the quarter were $16 million, an increase of 10.5% from last year, with the $1.5 million increase the result of increased sales volume again partially offset by a reduction from a lower proportion of CIF contract sales and reduced costs as a higher proportion of shipments went through our own Westview port. 
Our half million dollar increase in SG&A expenses in the quarter was due to overall growth of the company and relevant increases in staffing. This was partially offset by a decrease in our travel expenses. We recorded net income of $7.7 million in Q3 2020, compared to a net loss of $1.5 million in Q3 2019, and adjusted gross margin in the quarter was $31.7 million, or 24.1% of revenue, compared to $17.9 million, or 19.3% of revenue in Q3 last year. With the higher margins this year, including $2.6 million of business interruption insurance proceeds related to the Entwistle incident, as compared to $4 million in Q3 2019. Free cash flow for Q3 2020 was $18.4 million, compared with $7.3 million from Q3 last year. Our maintenance capex for the quarter was $2.3 million, up from $2 million in Q3 a year ago. And at quarter end, we had cash and cash equivalents of $21.8 million and total available liquidity of $169.6 million. Adjusted EBITDA totaled $26.1 million for the quarter compared to $13.6 million in Q3 a year ago, with the increase attributed to the higher sales volume partially offset by higher production costs related to the higher volumes. And a quick update on the Entwistle facility insurance. Final settlement was reached for the insurance claim for a total of $29.2 million, net of a $1 million deductible. As a result, in Q3 2020, an additional $2.6 million of business interruption insurance recoveries were booked as an offset of production costs and $1.1 million of additional capital cost recoveries were booked as other income. A total of $4.3 million was booked in accounts receivable at the end of Q3 2020. We have received all but $1.5 million of that so far in the fourth quarter and expect to have received the entirety by the end of the quarter. In Q3 2019, $4 million of business interruption insurance recoveries were booked as an offset of production costs. I'll now turn the call back over to Duncan for an update on our capital projects and our outlook. Thanks, Andrea. At our high-level uh, project in northern Alberta, we're nearing the commissioning phase and advanced our production readiness and staff training and preparation. This is an exciting time for everyone at Pinnacle and for our capital projects and operating groups in particular. I've been very impressed with the level of coordination and alignment between these groups as they brought the project to this stage. The capital budget for high level has been reset at $70.6 million to account for a number of improvements in design, which we feel will improve the operating performance and safety of the mill once it begins operations, and to cover additional construction costs incurred during the abnormal rains that we saw in northern Alberta this summer. Pinnacle's 50% share of the high-level budget is $35.3 million. We contributed $7.9 million to the project in the third quarter, bringing our total spend on the project to date to $23.4 million, or 66% of projected costs. With commercial production scheduled to commence at the end of this month, we remain confident the project at high-level will deliver attractive returns going forward, in spite of the increase in the capital budget. Construction also continued 
in the third quarter on our Demopolis, Alabama plant. Based on the reports I've seen, this project is progressing as planned with commissioning expected in the second quarter next year. Pinnacle contributed $13.1 million to the Demopolis project in the third quarter, bringing the total expenditure to date to $39.9 million for approximately 42% of the total budgeted cost. In addition to the two major projects, we have two important mid-sized projects that were nearing completion at the end of the third quarter. The phase two project at our Ellisville, Alabama mill was completed in the early weeks of the fourth quarter. This project adds a truck unload, unloading system to the mill's infrastructure and broadens the access to additional supplies of sawmill residuals, supporting our goal of boosting production volumes at that mill. And the planned upgrade at our Metabank mill in the BC interior that was put on hold earlier this year due to COVID concerns was restarted in the third quarter. This project will enhance the operating flexibility of the Metabank operation and help the mill adapt to the changing nature of fiber supply in the BC interior. Commissioning at Metabank will begin later this month. Combined, the four projects increased Pinnacle's overall production capacity by almost 20% to 2.9 million metric tons per year. Customer demand for pellets remains strong, and we expect to see positive year-over-year -year production increases in the fourth quarter, as the Ent Missile and Williams Lake operations operate at capacity, and the benefits of our investments at Aliceville and Metabank add to our volumes. We also expect to see some incremental volumes from high level in December. At the same time, Cooler and wetter weather will moderate production volumes and increase drying costs over the next two quarters as is typical of the winter months. In addition, the spillover of the Fiberco event impacted loading operations at that port in the early part of Q4 and, and, will, and could continue to do so through the balance of this quarter and possibly longer, with additional impacts on rail service and production. All in all, this is an exciting time for us and for me in particular. We have lots on the go and our efforts are focused intently on delivering the best possible results and driving growth that will create value for all concerned in the months and years ahead. And before I turn the call over to you, I, I'd like to thank Rob for his support uh, during this transition period and let you folks know that Rob has agreed to stay with Pinnacle in an advisory capacity uh, for the next while. I think part of it is he's concerned that uh, I might drop the ball, but I think uh, Rob uh, and his dedication to this company, it's, it's hard to take him away from it, and so I'm del absolutely delighted that uh, he's going to stay involved with us, and I look forward to working with him and with Andrea and the whole Pinnacle team as, as we move things forward. So Pam, at this time, I think what I'd like to do is open the call uh, to our guests and so we can answer any questions they might have. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. Should you have a question, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will hear three-tone prompt acknowledging your request and your questions will be polled in the order they are received. Should you wish to decline from the polling process, please press star followed by two. If you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before pressing any keys. One moment for your first question. Your first question comes from Mark Jarvie with CIBC Capital. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, first question for you, Duncan, just um, as you take the, the CEO role here, I'm just wondering if you're going to be any sort of subtle shifts in terms of fiber supply strategy, positioning for growth, or 
anything around balance sheet uh, management, um, maybe just kind of comment on any sort of evolution that you, you, you see that is required at Pinnacle? Well, that, that's a multifaceted question. <laughs> um, you know, fiber supply is you know, hugely important uh, to a company like ours. Um, you know, we've seen you know, quite a bit of variability uh, over the last couple of years, particularly in our BC operations, um, as you know, the sawmilling sector was impacted by you know, uh, downturns in, in 2019 and then during the early stages of the, of the COVID uh, issue uh, earlier this year. Uh, things have settled down um, more recently, and I think Rob was talking about you know, the, the percentage of sawmill residuals that... Uh, formed the basis of our, our feedstock in this quarter being more of the traditional sum of residuals than, than other potential supplies. But in, in fairness, we all know going forward that allowable cuts are, are going to drop in BC, and we know that the, the percentage of sawmill residuals is probably going to drop along with that. Uh, we've been working hard and have, and have been long before I arrived on the scene here at Pinnacle. We've been, we've been working hard to develop a our strategy to be able to adapt to alternate forms of feedstock. There's a number of things that, that we've got on the go, you know, both in terms of access to fiber, but also in terms of our ability to process these different forms of feedstock uh, more efficiently than might have been the case historically that we're going to continue to build on as we go forward. Uh, and so that's from a BC standpoint. I think the other thing that's really important is what Pinnacle's been doing over the last number of years of diversifying its its fiber basket. And in many respects, it's very similar to you know, what the, uh, the key players in the sawmilling sector started doing you know, 15 years or so ago of moving into jurisdictions with um, probably more stable fiber baskets, whether it be Alberta or the U.S. South. And Pinnacle uh, has certainly been moving in that direction as well. And, we, and with the high-level project in northern Alberta and the Demopolis project in, in Alabama, uh, you know, Pinnacle's continuing to move in that direction. I suspect uh, going forward we're going to continue to uh, focus our attention and our, our development activities in areas that provide you know, more, more predictable, uh, potentially more stable um, components of, of, of fiber soil going forward. Uh, I think I think your other question mark pertained to you know, the, the company's balance sheet, and you know that's that's obviously an area that um, I've been looking at uh, at Pinnacle. Um, you know, my background is on the financial side of of the forest products business as well, so I, I'm a I'm a very big believer in you know well structured uh, balance sheets and well structured debt as components of a, of a company's capital structure. I think the pellet, the pellet business is different than the sawmilling sector. Um, it's not. It's more stable. Uh, it's not subjected to the you know the wild market swings that the you know the the lumber group and OSB and and some of the other sectors uh, might be. So I, I think there's a, there's an ability to absorb uh, you know a higher level of of leverage inside the pellet business than there would be inside those other areas. But it's something that. Uh, I'm going to be spending some time with Andrea and, and the members of our board, you know, talking about what the appropriate uh, capital structure is uh, for a company like us on a go-forward basis. So we we both uh, position ourselves to withstand any risks that might exist, but also have the wherewithal to be able to pursue our growth strategies, which we think are so important uh, to our company on a go-forward basis. <laughs> 
So, Doug, it sounds largely like you, you're, you're kind of confident in the strategy and diversification efforts that are kind of ongoing. It's just more of a, a slight evolution and, and tweaking of, of sort of strategy in terms of uh, fiber supply. So, so, no major overhaul there? Well, I, it's one of the things that attracted me uh, to Pinnacle, Mark. And, and my guess is one of the things that Pinnacle saw in my background that uh, would be helpful for them. Um, you know, in my, in my previous role, um, you know, I led the company's diversification uh, into the U.S., both in the Pacific Northwest and in the U.S. Southeast. And you know, I know all the players, and I know I know the environment in those areas pretty well. And so, given given what Pinnacle's plans are, I think there was a, a confluence of interests and experiences here, both from my standpoint and I think from Pinnacle's standpoint, that said that's that's where the company's headed. It's, I can bring something to the table there and we'll go in that direction. So, so I think uh, I would agree that the, the move into Alberta and, and, and the U.S. South is, 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 seems like a smart move and, and good from diversification and, and margin protection. So just, you know, if you've got the existing assets like Allison and Whistle, just opportunities to put incremental capital there and, and, and maybe sort of lean on the balance sheet and improve cash flow generation to, to augment those assets and maybe even think about Retiring some capacity in BC to you know to stabilize margins is that something that you're spending a bit of time on or? Uh, sure. Well, what I can tell you is, um, well, Rob and I were at Entwistle, you know, I guess a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were talking to the guys there about the plans that they've got to to boost production in a very capital efficient manner at at that plant that I'm I'm just really excited about. And similarly, at, at Aliceville, I think there's good opportunities there. And with the addition of the, you know, our Phase Two project, which is a truck dumper, which gives us access to more residual sawmill supplies, I think there's really good potential uh, to boost, boost the production at that facility as well. And when you look at projects like those, the capital efficiency of them is is tremendous uh, compared to you know, other types of discretionary investments that might be available to you. And we want to make sure uh, as we drive things forward from a capital allocation standpoint that we're taking advantage um, on a priority basis of, of, the, of the projects that provide us with the best returns. Okay, and just on the return of capital, common, just on the high level, the incremental costs, you know, that added engineering, they talked about it improved, um, I guess, productivity there. Do you expect to see some incremental EBITDA gains um, or lower sustaining capex with with those improvements? And just does it still kind of come underneath the 5.5 times sort of capex to EBITDA projections that you guys have been sort of targeting on the upper end? Well, I, I think at this point we're better to stick with with that view, Mark. Um, what I've I've heard from our capital projects guys and from our operating guys is they feel really good about the installation. So. Um, if if you think about a capital project, uh, the operability of that project uh, is just really important in terms of being able to deliver the pro forma uh, benefits of that investment. And what I've seen from our guys or heard from our guys is a confidence level that's increasing that um, we've got it right at high level. And that project uh, should very should uh, generate the kind of returns that we we made the investment on. And if anything, the confidence level is even higher today than it was initially, even though the capital cost may have gone up uh, a bit. Okay. 
I'll jump back in the cube. I just wanted to say to Rob, uh, happy retirement. I know the world isn't where you probably want it to be as, as you tackle on your, uh, your bucket list, but all the best, Rob. Thank you. Your next question comes from David Newman with Desjardins. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning. So uh, welcome aboard, Duncan and uh, Rob. All the best on your delayed retirement. Uh, maybe the vaccine on the way, you'll, you'll be able to get out on your bike, bike excursion at some point here. Thanks, so uh, just Absolutely. a few questions. Um, so many things worked out in your favor in the third quarter, uh, including the macro environment, which helped supply weather and the strong operations. So barring any operational hiccups, which do come along from time to time, and, and the weather, what level of gross margins do you think could be sustained here or unit production costs? It does look like this is looking more like two, 2017 margins. I'm going to let Andrea answer that one, uh, David. Good morning, David. Good morning. Uh, we've, uh, we've certainly talked over the last few quarters about uh, adjusted gross margin. And uh, in Q3, as you can see, we are able to deliver very strong margins. Uh, even if you back out the business interruption insurance proceeds, uh, it was still a, a very strong margin quarter uh, with well above 20%. Uh, on an annual basis, Duncan talked about it in the outlook, you've got seasonal factors that, in, particularly in northern Canada, will, will hit us every year. Uh, so on, on an annualized basis, um, we look to return closer to those 2017 levels. Uh, the reality is that things have changed in, uh, in the BC forest sector, uh, so fiber processing costs, uh, drying costs, etc. are higher. Uh, as we're filling out our diversification strategy as you know, Alberta, uh, Alabama, we are seeing strong margins from that region and that's pulling us back toward those historical levels. Okay, and then um, the macro environment has obviously been pretty supportive with the high lumber prices and the lower stumpage. And lumber prices have rolled over to, a little, to, to some degree and uh, maybe rallies again with a vaccine and stumpage will rise again next year. Although my understanding is that they may increase the frequency of reset. Maybe Duncan, you know, given your experience in, in the space, um, and I know you guys are diversify, diversifying, but how does the macro look like and do you think they'll be able to set stumpage uh, a little bit more frequently so it reflects reality so we don't get caught in a situation again? Well, it Trying to predict what's going to happen on the stump side of things is, is a bit of a mugs game. Um, what we've what we've had, well, what we had in 2019 was a, a an event where your lumber prices ran up in the early part of the year and then uh, ran ran down quite dramatically and then got with stumpage rates going in the opposite direction, which had a material impact on on operating rates inside the business and in, impacted us. For sure, I, I think I, I think it's going to be difficult to predict just exactly what happens in lumber markets and, and stumpage markets going forward. And so, you know, part part of the strategy uh, that Pinnacles had, which is exactly the same strategy that that I had in uh, my, my previous uh, role, was to diversify the business and reduce dependence on any one. Um, geographic region uh, and by doing that reducing reducing the exposure to any variable that could negatively impact the business 
So I think that's that's a big part of the, the broader piece of this at the macro level. The other side of it is I think Pinnacle's done a good job of uh, building up its fiber inventories to give it more ability to withstand um, any shocks that might occur, whether it's on the lumber production side or the logging side or what have you. I think Pinnacle's done a nice job building up uh, that fiber inventory to be able to uh, support its operations in the event uh, the supply of traditional residuals is is compromised. The, the trick is being able to process that material as efficiently as you process uh, the other forms of feedstock. And I think there's been a whole bunch of lessons learned over the last couple of years on, on how to do that. And there's been a bunch of uh, lessons learned about where the constraints exist inside our uh, respective mills to be able to enhance their flexibility. And part of this, our strategy going forward is to address those uh, constraints. I don't think there's massive amounts of capital required, but um, there's opportunities to address those constraints to give the company more ability to move back and forth between different forms of feedstock without compromising productivity or, or margins to the extent that we might have seen historically. And given your experience and, and obviously knowledge of many of the participants in, in British Columbia, um, I mean, are, are the mills that you're that you and certainly uh, your some of your peers, uh, the mills that you look at, are they still operating at a fairly uh, consistent pace? And is there any nervousness about the lumber prices where they are today and the potential for stumpage to go up next year that you're gonna it reverses in in 2021? Is there any? Are you hearing anything from the field? Um, well, first of all, lumber prices today, in, his, in historic terms, uh, are pretty good. Yeah. Uh, they may not they may not be as good as they were, you know, four or five months ago, but they're pretty darn good. And um, I would expect as as things move forward, you know, we're going to continue to see, you know, growth and demand for lumber. We're going to continue to see, you know, strong operating rates in, in the lumber sector throughout throughout North America. British Columbia is a bit of a, a, a different cat in that uh, we've got uh, the after effects of, of the pine beetle uh, infestation that's going to reduce allowable cuts going forward and it's going to reduce the overall supply of, 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 of sawmill residuals as there's more contraction inside the lumber sector. Whether or not uh, the administrative folks can figure out how to, how to manage stumpage without some of the wild swings or not is, is not something that you know, we're really in a position to be able to judge. The, the key for us is to manage the things we can control. And what we can control is the kind of inventories that we uh, carry and what our ability is to process different forms of feedstock in an efficient manner. Beyond that, um, you, you get into a bunch of speculation that I'm, that I'm not sure is all that helpful. Um, I just prefer to focus on what we can control and what we can't control and make, take the steps that we need to do to make sure that we're managing our business as effectively as we possibly can on a go-forward basis. Makes sense. And the last one for me, um, you know, the ongoing saga that is CN and, and obviously with FiberCo with the, with the bin failure, uh, it shaved 20,000 tons off of this quarter. Um, what do we, you guys have a sense on what the magnitude of the of of it might be 
in 4Q in terms of CN and Fibrocol? Um, it depends on a, a whole bunch of things. You know, it de depends on whether or not the you know the Fibrocol terminal is able to continue to operate as they work around the the repairs that they have to make there. Uh, it, it depends on lots of things like weather and everything else from a standpoint of uh, the efficiency of uh, inland uh, transportation. We've been talking actively uh, with the CN folks about uh, the importance of service levels to our operations. You know, Rob, Rob and I met with our my counterpart at, at CN last week to talk about that. Um, our sales folks and logistics folks are, are meeting on a um, virtually a daily basis with, with CN uh, to talk about uh, those service levels. So uh, we're, we're looking forward to uh, you know, inc an increased level of cooperation and an increased level of performance inside CN. You know, at the same time, you know, just like from a fiber supply standpoint, you know, we need to you know, have better control over our own destiny. So we've been talking internally with our board about some of the things that we think that might make sense for us to, to look at doing, which gives us would give us better ability to um, you know, withstand you know, some of the issues that traditionally occur inside inside the business. And you know, again, another one of the I guess the approaches that I think are important is you know, let's forget the wishful thinking approach. Let's take some let's take specific steps that uh, help us control our own destiny more than we might have been able to do in the past. Anything you can highlight there, Duncan? Well, those are discussions we're having you know, with the board of how, how to build additional resiliency into our system. And we're looking at a variety of different options. And I'd rather not go into specifics on a speculative basis. I, I think that's a discussion we have to have with our board first. Yeah, okay, very good. Uh, thanks, for the, uh, thanks for the comments and uh, great quarter. Thanks, David. Your next question comes from Nelson Ng with RBC Capital. Please go ahead. Great, thanks. And uh, Duncan, congratulations on your new role. And uh, Rob, hope you enjoy your retirement. Um, so my first question is, you've talked about the uh, CN service issues. Can you just give a bit more color as to um, what some of those issues are? Like I know in the past we've seen some service issues when there's cold weather in Q1, but but obviously this isn't related to cold weather, so are you able to just give a bit more color as to the uh, service issues you've been seeing? Well, I think in simple terms, it, it boils down to having rail cars at our plants as, as the product is produced and getting those, uh, getting those rail cars to, whether it's Prince Rupert or Fiberco, uh, in a manner that allows us to meet our shipping obligations. And if there's any tie-ups along the way or we don't make switches or whatever happens and you, you end up with no rail cars at a particular facility, uh, there's only limited amounts of storage capacity and we'll see situations where um, a plant will have to shut down uh, because of the lack of rail service. And uh, that's in, everybody knows what the storage capacity is of each individual facility and, and what the exposure is to uh, that that service level. You know, similarly, you know, getting getting cars to to the terminal in in, uh, in Prince Rupert or to Fiberco and getting them unloaded uh, efficiently and getting them back into service and back to the the mills that uh, 
uh, we're looking to service is extremely important. And there's been there's been issues at both both areas, both both from a production standpoint or from a mill standpoint, but also getting them to Prince Rupert and getting them offloaded in a timely way and back into service. And so, and and those that's driven by a whole bunch of different considerations, all of which is, or most of which is management of that fleet um, that is key. And so making sure that um, there's good communication between our folks and CN and making sure that the CN folks are doing what they need to do to be able to service us, and we think we're an important client to them, uh, making sure that that happens and happens on a daily basis uh, is the key piece of the puzzle. And are you only seeing a lot more of these issues after you've increased uh, or ramped up production uh, in Q3? Like, have you seen these issues in Q2? I think those issues have existed forever. And I think they're exacerbated by uh, the ramp up of, of production, which results in the need to move more cars and move them faster than was the case historically. You know, and I, okay. You know, this is an important consideration, and you know, we had a very constructive discussion uh, last week with uh, the, the CN folks, and um, I think they understand what the issue is, and I believe they're doing you know, what they can to uh, respond to our concerns. And um, you know, from that standpoint, I, I couldn't I couldn't ask for for more in that regard. Uh, but it's 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 managing in the corners and it's the details of, of that that happens every single day that needs to be managed well uh, to be successful. And what I said earlier was, uh, you know, I think there's some things that we need to do to ensure that we're uh, delivering on our side of that bargain. And there's some things that we need to do to ensure that we have uh, a higher degree of resiliency and ability to withstand um, a service failure by a third-party supplier for whatever reason, and there's some. I think there's a number of things that we can do. And, and yesterday, when we met with our board, we talked to them about some of the things we think is going to be important for us to go forward on. And they've asked us to uh, flesh out our plans and to uh, tell them uh, what we believe will be involved uh, in that and what what benefits we think we can achieve from that, just like we would look at any other potential opportunity. Okay, thanks. And then um, just moving on to uh, fiber and the residuals at sawmills. So it was about 84% uh, usage of sawmill residuals in Q3. Um, do you get a sense of uh, whether it's gonna stay roughly at that level in Q4, given the high operating rates, like any color into like Q4 and even out to Q1? I think from a Q4 standpoint, we would expect, you know, give or take, you know, that kind of a number uh, in Q4. You know, the question will be primarily what happens to uh, the sawmill operating rates over the Christmas um, holiday season. It traditionally, uh, mills uh, will take uh, some incremental downtime there that uh, could impact the overall supply of residuals. We've been talking to our suppliers to try to get an understanding of of what their operating plans are uh, over that period of time, but you know that's that's still you know a month or more away, and I think we got to work on the premise that you know uh, plans are fluid. 
looking forward into the first quarter, um, normally uh, the first quarter is uh, pr a pretty decent um, market for uh, for lumber uh, as uh, distributors build up inventory in anticipation of, of a spring buying season. But I think what we've got now is a quite a different situation that most of us have not been through uh, before as a result of of COVID. So we're, we're watching that carefully. Uh, and we also know that uh, we're going to see uh, some stumpage increases uh, in some jurisdictions in the first quarter. And we're trying to get an understanding of what, what the impact of those stumpage increases will be on both uh, logging activity and on lumber production. And we're building our plans around that accordingly. Okay. And then just one last question, and then this is probably for, for Andrea. Um, just in terms of the uh, spending curve on high level, like, I believe 66% of the spend is complete, but the facilities due to be commissioned this quarter. Um, so, like, is the spend very back-end loaded, and should we expect uh, a material amount of capex to be incurred um, in the first half of next year for high level? Yeah, so uh, in terms of overall gross-related capex and, and really focusing on high-level and Demopolis, uh, obviously uh, Q4 2019, as you say, will be completing high-level and will be doing significant spend on, on Demopolis. But we do, in terms of timing of uh, cash outflows for those uh, expenditures, we do have holdbacks uh, for performance-related uh, met metrics and completion uh, that would result in some of the cash flows uh, moving into uh, Q1, even on high level. Okay, thanks. Uh, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nelson. Your next question comes from Haseen Khan with National Bank. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Hassan. Uh, I'm talking on behalf of Rupert. Now, with COVID-induced uncertainties now easing up a bit, could we get more colors and any updates regarding future contract discussions? So, yeah, I, I, I would say future contract discussions are, are ongoing, and, and COVID really hasn't impacted them. Uh, the, the utilities, both in Europe and in Asia, are continuing to produce electricity, and I've been quite pleased to see, particularly the European utilities. Uh, you know, they've been very keen on burning biomass, uh, and any reductions that have seen demand or changes in grid demand, they've they've uh, compensated that by taking their coal-fired assets offline. So, you know, Vaughn's quite busy these days. Continues to have discussions. I remind you that many of the discussions with Japan take years to conclude. So, um, you know, that basis that we had, um, and, and, you know, we have less uh, people doing due diligence and coming to visit us because of COVID, but the discussions continue on. All right, just one more from me. Uh, just on the pellet supply front, do you know Pinnacle's seen an elevated level of third-party sales over the past couple of queues, not this quarter, obviously. What level can we expect sales to come in in Q4 or Q1, given the cool off in the weather? Yeah, so you know, when we start the year, our sales and logistics department work with our customers and manage shipments to our contracts throughout the year. 
So we're typically able to, we know with the cold weather that production rates will be uh, lower than they are in, in Q3, and so we, we plan accordingly. Um, in Q1, uh, we had uh, more significant third-party purchases because of the challenges we had with the, uh, the CN blockades, etc. So going forward, uh, we would be opportunistic uh, in terms of third-party purchases where uh, we can see margin uh, and uh, opportunities with our customers. Given our current production rates, uh, we don't see that we will have a, a need to uh, have significant volume. Mm, that's it for me. Uh, congratulations again, Rob, for your comments. Thank you. Your next question comes from Benoit Lepredi with Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Great. Good morning, everyone. Uh, well, first of all, Rob, congratulations. And I guess best of luck in this uh, new chapter of your life. And, uh, Thanks, Duncan, Benoit. And Duncan as well, congrats and uh, welcome back. I'm, I'm glad our paths are, are <laughs> crossing again. A um, few questions. Um, would you dare to provide some guidance on CapEx for the full year 2020 and any preliminary review for 2021? Well, if you ask that question, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Andrew, but thanks for the kind comments, Benoit. Yeah, so in terms of uh, you know, CapEx for 2020, uh, as, as I mentioned uh, in response to Nelson, uh, I do see that uh, Q4 uh, we will add significantly in our growth-related CapEx, um, certainly in terms of what we put on the balance sheet, uh, and some of that will still be sitting in accounts payable at year-end. Uh, so something in the, the range of... Uh, uh, 30 to 40 million uh, in Q4 of 2020, in addition to existing spend on growth related. Uh, and then uh, Q4 will have our uh, typical maintenance uh, CapEx uh, volume, similarly probably to what you would have seen in Q3. As we move forward into 2021 of announced projects, uh, we will be completing Demopolis, uh, and we would have expected by then to have uh, Meadow Bank and, and high level uh, completed. And then we will, as, as Duncan said, uh, in addition to the completion of, of Demopolis, which will uh, still have uh, you know, probably uh, you know, roughly in the 40 to $50 million uh, range of completion uh, into Q1 uh, and Q2, uh, we would see other projects that we identify uh, in uh, enhancement of existing facilities. And of course, we, uh, we expect to continue to work on what our uh, net new greenfield development opportunities are, uh, and uh, uh, there is potential for something in 2021. Yeah, thanks. Um, would you provide any production guidance for 2021? I think in terms of uh, of numbers, um, we have a 2.8 million run rate once we have high level and Demopolis at full run rate. Uh, high level, given that it is a smaller facility, uh, will be on the commissioning curve throughout most of 2021 because it'll it'll just be starting producing in Q4. And Demopolis, uh, the larger facility at 360,000 tons, 
it only starts producing um, in in the uh, second quarter of 2021. So I think you have to take that 560,000 of the two facilities combined and uh, apply a, you know, a decent handicap to that uh, to the 2.8 million run rate. Okay, thanks. And, and last one, and I'm not sure who wants to take this one. Um, in terms of the cost, obviously running up to now anyway, running on sawmill residuals was probably cheaper and easier than running on, on harvest residuals. Uh, clearly some progress has been made. Just curious, maybe as of today, would you quantify what would be the difference in processing one versus the other? And based on experience so far, uh, how much you think leeway you have to actually narrow that gap? And could you at some point become virtually uh, agnostic in terms of what you process? I, I think the objective, uh, Benoit, is to become relatively agnostic between them. Um, I think I think there's um, there's certain penalties, and I prefer not to to quantify them. Uh, you know, at this point in, in this in this kind of environment, um, just from a pure, from a competitive standpoint, um, there are there are differences in the cost of processing one form of feedstock versus processing another form of feedstock. Our goal going forward, recognizing the changes that are happening in British Columbia, is to become more efficient in processing what I would call the alternate or non-traditional forms of, of, of fiber supply. And I think Pinnacle has, has had some success you know, over the last year or so in terms of adapting to you know, the changing fiber environment, but there's more progress that we need to, to make in that regard to the point where we can become relatively agnostic. And it's one of the priorities that we have uh, as a company uh, looking through the latter part of 2020 and in, into 2021 is to be able to identify exactly what those constraints are and precisely what we should be doing to get ourselves in that position. Great, thanks. That's very helpful. And again, best of luck to, to you all. Thank, thanks, Bema. Ladies and gentlemen, as a reminder, if you have any questions, please press star one. Your next question comes from Ian Gillis with Stifle. Please go ahead. Morning, everyone. Morning. Um, with respect to growth opportunities, um, one of your peers has obviously been highlighting um, what's transpiring in Germany and potential demand in, in that country. And I was wondering if you could maybe specifically talk to that region and, and some of what you're seeing and how you're thinking about the opportunity set there. Yeah, I think that, that uh, we see continued growth in, in the marketplace. Um, don't forget we see continued growth in Japan as well. But as far as Europe, we see certainly um, uh, policy-wise in Germany, the, the announcement to uh, come off of coal by 2050 or, or before then. And so that's driving the uh, inquiries and, and people talking about more biomass, particularly in Germany. Uh, also, we see... Um, more interest coming out of countries like Poland as well. And so those are all good opportunities into the future for Europe. Thanks, that, that's helpful. And um, the other question I was curious on is, as you get close to putting Demopolis into service, and I'm, I'm just 
wondering whether there's any economies of scale you get from that specific region by adding a new plant in. I mean, obviously, as you get increased throughput, it's, it's helpful. But by having two plants there, is there anything to be gained there on the margin front? I, I think the what we see there's, there's several there. What we see is is things like barging and, and volume on barging because both of them will go down the same river to the port of Mobile. So there's certainly that. We also will see synergies that, that the plants are pro, close proximity and so the edges of the fiber basket uh, o overlap each other. So there's there's synergies on transport and also. Um, some some opportunities to flow fiber back and forth between the two plants. Um, the, the third one is, and we've always talked about it, is the ability to uh, take volume out of the U.S. southeast and deliver that into Europe, and that frees up capacity on the west coast to go into Japan, and you don't end up with ships crossing uh, and meeting each other in the Panama Canal. So you you, you unlock that freight uh, freight advantage. That's um, that's great and very useful to know. Thank you very much. I'll turn the call back over. Thanks, Ian. There are no further questions at this time. Please proceed. Thanks very much, Pam, and, and thanks, everybody, for attending the call today. We appreciate the interest in the company. I think it's, it was important uh, for Rob to be here and uh, certainly important from my standpoint to know that Rob is going to continue to be uh, with us and supporting our company and supporting me and as we uh, drive the business forward. So looking forward to talking to you again at the end of the next quarter. Uh, I know there's an ongoing dialogue that happens between Andrea and, and her staff with you folks, but uh, I'd also expect to be uh, more active myself in this area as, as we move forward. So I'm hoping to have an opportunity to talk to each of you individually as we move forward and uh, going from there. So again, we're excited about the company. Thank you very much for your interest and look forward to talking to you uh, on an ongoing basis. Thanks everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating and ask that you please disconnect your lines. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.
Corient.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.